0: Oh, Recorded live.
1: Now, views and opinions of Nation Talk are not necessarily views of TalkShoe, Jam Radio Production, and its sponsors. This is Nation Talk.
2: You're listening to the Jam Radio Network with Minister Kenneth Jenkins. <laughs>
1: Talk. This is Nation Talk. Nation Talk is the live public affairs and news program that deals with issues concerning you from the studios of Savannah, Georgia. the conversation, call Western 24, 444, 7444, call ID number, five 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 one nine 9 pounds. Western 24, 444, 4, 4,
3: 7444,
1: call ID number, five 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 1, 9 pounds.
4: That's the sound of your classmate forwarding a picture from your profile to everyone he knows. Some guys posting graphic comments about your body. And worst of all, your dad seeing a photo of you topless. All because of the time you posted those pictures on your profile. Anything you post online, anyone can see. Family, friends, and even not-so-friendly people. Visit Cybertipline.com.
5: Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Justice, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, and the Ad Council.
6: Citizens of America, this is a message from FeedThePig.org. Americans spent more money than they earned in 2005. This is the first negative savings rate in the U.S. since the Great Depression. America, we must start feeding the pig. On
2: the 1st and the 15th, we must pay ourselves before we pay anyone or anything. We must make a budget. Even consider cutting up a credit card. Log on to FeedThePig.org today. Find the benefits of saving for every stage of life.
6: Brought to you by the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants and the Ed
2: Council.
4: Hey, Nick Cannon here So of course we all know there's lots of talent in America But unfortunately, there's something else we've got way too much of Childhood hunger 17 million kids struggle with it in this country But here's the thing This problem is entirely solvable Seriously, we already produce more than enough healthy, nutritious food in this country To feed every single last one of those hungry kids We just need a way to get it to them that's why the Feeding America Nationwide Network of Food Banks is out there every day gathering surplus food to give hope to hungry kids and their families all across the country. But they need your help. Join me in supporting Feeding America and your local food bank at feedingamerica.org. Together we can solve hunger. Together we're Feeding America. A message
2: from Feeding America and the Ad Council. You're listening. To the Jam Radio Network
1: with Minister Kenneth Jenkins. The views and peas of Nation Talk are not necessarily the views of TalkShoe, Jam Radio Productions, and Sponsors. This is Nation Talk. <laughs> A Sunday evening forum that brings you the presentation of news, views, and a lot of other good stuff. From right of students in Savannah, Georgia. Tonight from the BBC The Film to Broadcast Hate. Also, Roseanne Barr versus the American Broadcasting Company. Will she have her show renewed with or without?
7: Sambar versus ABC.
1: Now, there's another... There's another...
7: So uh was that double standard? What was that double
1: standard when it comes to um was bar
7: and um Rosanne Barr,
1: and um, I'm trying to find um, the young lady's name. And by the way, GGG555, welcome to the program. You can call it at 124 444 call at your number, 555
7: pounds. It seemed to be a double standard
1: concerning um concerning um this whole blah blah that's been going on between between um, Roseanne and A B C and I still can't think of the lady's name. <laughs> I still can't think of her name. So I may have to go to YouTube
7: and find it. But but it's, and I've been hearing some folks saying that it,
1: has, it is a double standard. But what she said, and she got five, and she, Her show um, was released. She was released from the network. Her show was canceled, by the way. Versus, but this other talk show lady, talk show lady,
7: um, she's still on the air. Now, Someone tell me. Somebody tell me. What in the world's going on?
1: That she did beg ABC not to cancel the show. That remains to be seen. If, if um, they will honor that. Um, let's
7: see. Let's see if I could uh, get an audio here.
1: Okay, okay. The other the lady I I couldn't think of and her name is Samantha B.
7: Samantha B. Now um Okay, here it is. Samantha B is
1: said to be a very controversial call full frontal. And <laughs> this is what she said. It got away with. Way over the
2: line. Comedian Samantha B going after Ivanka Trump using an extremely vulgar term. Listen to that. Let me just say, one mother to another, do something about your dad's immigration practices, you feckless. F-. And you know what? Uh, incredibly offensive when we bring in senior money, senior media reporter Oliver Darcy. So set the stage for us here. It's never okay to say something like that about someone. What was she even talking about? What was the context here? Yeah, it was a really disgusting amount. Uh, she made this in the context of trying to go after a Ivanka Trump for her father's immigration policies, and there's been a lot of discussion in the National Discourse uh, over the past few weeks about children being separated from their
8: parents mm-hmm. at the border, and so she was uh, making a comment about a photo that
2: Ivanka Trump had posted on Instagram, I believe, where she was holding her child and saying, why don't you do anything uh, about the immigration policies that your father has implemented that are tearing up families at the border. Uh, that said, obviously, this comment is
8: extremely crass and critics are abruptly upset and saying right. that uh, this is not something that
2: should be used while discussing politics in the national right. But uh, what's TBS saying? Uh, I've reached out to TBS. TBS hasn't said anything so far. Uh, We're still waiting for a comment from them. I asked if she'll be disciplined in any way or if there's going to be any statements. So we're still waiting to see uh, what happens and how they react. But this does come in the same week as Roseanne being horrified for making racist remarks. So critics are saying, you know, if you're going to condemn that, why aren't you condemning this? Uh, The point she was trying to make completely gets drowned out by her using a term like that. Right. Well, all the headlines right now are focused on this really vulgar term that she used. Um, so I'm not really sure how effective this was. Uh, she's trying to make the larger points about immigration policy than trying to make a
8: serious point, right, because people are not focusing on this vulgar remark. That said, people are not talking about it,
2: and I think that might have been perhaps something she was looking for. She's used this word before?
3: Right. other
2: people and other commentaries? Yeah, she has used this word before.
1: of standard. They'll be finding both networks. They'll, they'll find them. But just like just like they do the radio, just like they do on on television. They, if you if you say something, prerogatory, they will find you. Case in point. Case in point. Howard Stern.
7: The shock job. When, and when he When he says something
1: Um Derogatory They will find him And he even threatened to fire him They'll fire him They'll threaten to fire him If he does it again Which he did On a regular On a regular On uh, network Now, what network he's on now, I I don't know. I don't know what the standards are there. But it is a double standard between the two networks. This is Nation Talk. Call me, 1724 444 7444. Call I get number 555 19 pound is the number.
9: Now, why was it so big? Answers with Ken Ham, co-author of the best-selling The New Answers Book. You know, one of the most frequently asked questions posed by skeptics concerns how Noah got all the animals on the ark. You see, mocking evolutionists claim, well, Noah couldn't have fit the supposed millions of animals needed. But Noah didn't need that many animals. Only representatives of each kind of land-dwelling, air-breathing animal were to go on board. Our research scientists have shown that there can be many different species within each kind. For example, there are dingoes, wolves, coyotes, domestic dogs, and all these belong to the same kind. Plus the Bible says the ark was huge. Perhaps only a half of the ark space was needed for the animals. So why was it so big? Well, maybe it was because God allowed room for people who might repent and come on board and thus be saved. But only Noah's family believed. You know, Noah's ark is really a picture of salvation. And Christ is our modern-day Ark of Salvation. We'll answer your questions about the Ark and Flood of Noah in our new Pocket Guide, available to you for a donation of any size today. To get this excellent 95-page Ark Guide, call us toll-free, 24 hours a day, at 1-888-89-Answers. We'll also send you information about the Noah's Ark we're building. For the excellent guide, call 888 888- 89 Answers are on our website of AnswersOffer.org. Energy efficiency interviews are brought to you by the U.S. Department of Energy and the Ad Council.
4: Matthew, you know energy-saving light bulbs last six times longer than that old bulb in your lamp? Uh,
10: yeah, well, I don't even live here.
2: Matthew, dinner's ready.
10: I never met that woman.
11: It's your favorite, Matt, lasagna. Uh, Don't you people
5: knock? Just give me the energy saver.
0: Millions of kids are using their
7: energy wisely. What's your excuse? Learn more at LoseYourExcuse.gov. You're
2: listening to the Jam Radio Network with Minister Kenneth Jenkins.
7: The theories
1: of Nation Talk are not necessarily views of talk show, generated radio productions, and its sponsors. This is Nation Talk.
0: Thank you for downloading from the BBC. For details of our complete range of podcasts and our terms of use, go to bbcworldservice.com slash podcasts.
2: This is the, uh, what do I say, that you're the Islamic rock? (laughs) Islamic metal band. Islamic metal band.
12: we
7: Thank you for downloading from the BBC.
0: For details of our complete range of podcasts and our terms of use, go to bbcworldservice.com podcasts.
3: You're listening
0: to the BBC World Service. My name is Noureddin Zorgi, and this is a special program in the freedom season. Freedom to broadcast hate. Another bomb has just exploded in Baghdad. You can hear the chaos and the panic in people's voices. Baghdad is not the only place being torn apart by sectarian violence. It's happening in many countries in the Middle East. There are plenty of reasons for this. But one thing that appears to be significant is the profusion across the region of television channels broadcasting sectarian hatred. Shia against Sunni, Sunni against Shia. The nature of the language used by the preachers in this program may be offensive to some listeners. This Sunni preacher is calling on God to wipe out the Shia. What he is calling for is violent in the extreme. He's begging God, as he puts it, to freeze their blood in their veins. He's calling on God to send them cancer. The Shia channels, while less numerous, are no less offensive. <laughs> this preacher is hinting at the possibility of a homosexual relationship between two of the most revered icons of Sunni Islam. This is a grave insult. We've monitored dozens of these Islamic religious channels over the last few months. I want to find out who's behind them, who is giving them the freedom to broadcast hate, and what is being done to stop them. To understand what's happening in the Middle East today, we need first to understand the origins of the Sunni-Shia divide in Islam. This goes back to events immediately following the death of Prophet Muhammad, as Madawir Rashid explains. She is a visiting professor at the London School of Economics.
5: When the Prophet died, the Sunni claimed that he didn't designate his successor However, the Shia objected and said that his cousin, who is the only surviving male from his line of descent, should become the leader of the Muslim community. So this political uh, conflict over succession, over the leadership, who should become the leader of the Muslim community, resulted several decades later in uh, sort of uh, Islamic differences between the two groups that took the form of differences in worship, or in ritual, and also in outlook.
0: But Professor Al-Rashid cautions against attributing current sectarian tensions to circumstances of history long ago.
5: The conflicts we are witnessing today are product of modern conditions. These modern conditions are characterized above all by the repression that the Middle East uh, in general had experienced under authoritarian government. Authoritarian rule polarized the uh, the societies, banned civil society, did not allow political parties uh, to flourish, and therefore people retreated into the comfort of the sectarian zone. And in the absence of the idea of citizenship, we find people are actually drifting into the close circle of their sect, whether they are Sunni or Shia.
0: Iraq is one of the main battlegrounds. Sectarian violence there is worse than it has been for years. Hundreds of civilians are killed every month. Under Saddam Hussein, a Sunni minority ruled over a population that was largely Shia. But the Shia came to power after the United States-led invasion of 2003 that overthrew Saddam Hussein. The Sunnis in Iraq have been left feeling marginalized. This is a street market in a Shia district of the city. One of the stalls here used to belong to Abu Ali. He's a small man with a gray beard and sad eyes, and he has a sad story to tell. Five years ago, one of his sons was killed when a bomb blast ripped through the area. And then last year,
10: he lost two more in another attack. It was the eleventh day of Ramadan and we were sitting here laughing and joking. It was time to break our fast. Then we received a phone call to say the watermelon delivery had arrived. But as I was about to open the gate, we were thrown to the floor by the blast. Then the family started screaming and shouting that Allah and Abbas were dead.
0: To make matters worse for the people of Baghdad, they are bombarded every day with offensive rhetoric by numerous satellite television channels, channels that fan the flames of mutual antagonism. One of the best known of these channels in Iraq is Al-Anwar 2, a Shia channel al Anwar II was banned by the Iraqi government's media commission last year for extremism. But now it's been allowed back on air. What you're hearing now is a propaganda song being broadcast on al Anwar 2. The station is showing pictures of soldiers fighting in Syria. It's part of the station's campaign to encourage men to go and fight. In this case, it's calling on the Iraqi Shia to go and defend the holy shrine of Zainab in Damascus. (laughs) Al-Anwar II doesn't advertise its presence in Baghdad. Its offices are in a discreet house on a nondescript street. This is the first time they've allowed a Western journalist to visit them. I am meeting a senior advisor to the station, Hassan al-Muthawi.
6: We are not saying that everyone who isn't a Shia is a bad Muslim, or that to shed their blood or murder them is legitimate. On the contrary, those who call us rejectionists are generalizing by calling us all infidels and saying that it is legitimate to shed our blood.
0: This, Is often how sectarian broadcasters justify themselves. They say that they are simply responding to threats from the other side. Moussaoui is reluctant to talk about who funds the channel.
13: This channel
6: is funded by private individuals. As for names, I'm not authorized to talk on their behalf because the people who donate, they don't want me to reveal their names. Perhaps it's for religious reasons that they don't want to publicize their charitable giving. They're based in Kuwait, in Iraq, in the Gulf, and in Lebanon. But at the end of the day, our backers are Iraqis.
0: The Iraqi government has in the past taken action against television channels that broadcast sectarian hatred. Last year, they suspended ten of them, including Al-Anwar 2. And although Al-Anwar 2 is broadcasting again, Most of the rest of them are still off air. The man who brought in these bans is Mujahid Abul-Hail, who until recently worked at the Commission of Media and Communications in Baghdad. Uh, The most dangerous messages in the world are religious. A religious message can turn into explosions and
6: car bombs. It's even more dangerous than a political message Of course, there are sectarian hands manipulating this media message. Madawi
0: Rashid of the London School of Economics agrees with Mujahid Abul-Hail's analysis.
5: These uh, media outlets uh, are, in my view, very dangerous, simply because they play on the emotional uh, fears of people. They provide an outlet for uh, language of hate and intolerance, and they describe the world in terms of black and white.
0: Mujahid Abul Hail of the Iraqi Media Commission tells me that among the channels against which his commission has taken action is Ahlul Bayt, a Shia sectarian channel. He says his organization has stopped Ahlul Bayt raising money in Iraq. But our investigation has shown this is not true.
2: In Ta'ala, Qala Ahlul Bayt
0: broadcasts from the United States, although it has an audience in Iraq. Its founder and key presenter is Hassan al Yari. Yari seems committed to causing the deepest possible offense amongst Sunni Muslims. What you've just heard is Hassan al-Layari comparing two of the most revered Sunni leaders to two animals that are scorned in Islamic culture. The insult is so great that we bleeped out the actual words used. Ahlul Bayt is based in the United States, but some of the money that supports it is raised in Iraq. On a busy Baghdad street, we wait for our rendezvous. We've arranged to meet Sa'ir al-Darraji, a man we believe is still raising money for Ahlul Bayt in Iraq. Al-Darraji used to be a school teacher, but now campaigning against Sunnis is a full-time job, it seems. He's also a wanted man. There's a warrant out for his arrest in Iraq, and he's received numerous death threats. He's a difficult man to pin down. Sayer al is traveling in the car ahead of us. He's still very nervous, and to the last minute, our producer had to negotiate with him, and we're meeting him in a secret location. When we do finally make contact, Sayer al
6: is happy to acknowledge raising money for Bayt. I do have experience in collecting funds for Ahlul Bayt. I have collected a fair amount of money. Most of the people who donated are poor Shia. Al-Omari. Regarding the Sunni, we do not believe that they will be considered Muslims in the afterlife. We tolerate them as Muslims only in this life on earth. They are non-believers. They are infidels. We have to show the non-Muslim world that there are two Islams. There is Sunni Islam, the Islam represented by Abu Bakr and Omar, but the only real Islam is Shiaism. Islam is Shia and Shia is Islam. Abu Bakr
0: and Omar were two of the Prophet Muhammad's closest companions. Sunnis have great reverence for them. To insult them is to be deliberately and deeply offensive. I challenged the Darraji head-on. Wasn't it true, I said, that in reality what he was doing was directly
6: causing bloodshed?
0: He didn't deny it.
6: When the Prophet Muhammad was first spreading the word of Islam, blood was shed and people lost their lives. But that does not mean we should be silent and hide the truth for the sake of avoiding bloodshed. Ahl al wa 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 favorite
0: trick is to phone in to Sunni talk shows and provoke their presenters.
2: In this instance, he is actually calling
0: a television show in Egypt. He's talking to Muhammad al-Zughbi, a Sunni cleric and well-known television host. When a Daraji insults Aisha, one of the wives of the Prophet Muhammad, Zughbi is furious, although the tears he sheds may not be entirely sincere. <laughs> He instructs his producer to hang up on a Dharaji. Of course, the fact that Iraqis in Baghdad can watch channels from other countries makes the task of the Iraqi government harder. They have no control over channels that broadcast from, for example, Egypt. The Muslims of Egypt are overwhelmingly Sunnis. There is a tiny, discrete Shia population. Hundreds of the most influential TV channels, newspapers, and intellectuals in the Middle East are based here. Egypt also hosts the most important center of Sunni thought in the Islamic world, the Al-Azhar Mosque in Cairo. One former student of this highly regarded academic institution is Muhammad al the man we've just heard on air haranguing Tha'ir al daraji Al is one of the most outspoken Sunni clerics in Egypt, and he frequently appears on religious TV channels. <laughs> Today, Azubi is leading Friday prayers in Burj El an Egyptian village on the Mediterranean coast. His sermon is a mixture of religion and politics. He calls on Allah to protect Egypt not only from Jews, but also from Shia Muslims. He tells the congregation that Allah supports the Sunnis in Iraq, that he supports the Sunnis in Syria. And then he calls for the enemies of Sunnis to be struck down with various afflictions. He calls on Allah to send them pain, to freeze the blood in their veins, even to send them cancer. Just click around on the internet for a few minutes and it's not hard to find examples of Azubi's particular brand of religious hatred. In this one, he is again calling on God to punish the Shia and to freeze the blood in the veins of their religious leaders. He looks a little embarrassed as I play this to him on my laptop but he has an explanation
6: there was a context and a timing to this event for an hour and a half Yasser Habib ridiculed Aisha he mocked her in poems and accused her and the companions of the prophets of adultery this wasn't a small event he said all this on satellite television and the whole thing went viral on the internet Aisha was one of the
0: prophets wives and to insult her is deeply offensive. This is a tactic we've already met. Blame the other side. az defense is that he was merely responding to provocation, defending his ground. He couldn't let the insult go unanswered. Yasser al-Habib, the man he is quoting, is himself a well-known hate preacher. Azubi picks up a sheaf of paper to show me Some of the insults, he says, Sunnis have to put up with. These texts call on the Shia to curse dead Sunnis at their funerals
6: and authorize them to shed the blood of Sunnis. The proof is on this paper. So I'm battling with a group that's as dangerous as Al-Qaeda, if not more so.
12: is in
0: the throes of a political revolution. After President Mubarak was forced to step down in 2011, power was won by the Muslim Brotherhood. An Islamist, Mohamed Mursi, was elected president, and the voices of sectarianism began to seep into the political dialogue. (laughs) This was recorded at an Islamic conference in Cairo while President Morsi was in power. As Morsi sits impassively, a preacher implores him not to open Egypt up to the Shia, or as he calls them, the infidels. Men in the audience stand and applaud. Sunni-Shia tension in Egypt finally exploded in an incident last year in a village just to the south of Cairo. On the 23rd of June, 2013, in a neighbor house, a group of Egyptian Shias had gathered for a religious occasion. Hassan Shahata, a Shia cleric, had been invited. Outside stood a mob threatening to storm the house. (laughs) The images that were recorded that day in the street outside the house are disturbing in the extreme they show a crowd of men shouting and making threatening gestures and then we see the apparently lifeless body of a man being dragged through the street by his arms and legs his head is streaming with blood eventually the body is left spread-eagled in the dust as people gather round to look Three other men, as well as Hassan Shahata, were lynched that day. Shahata was well known in Egypt as a Shia preacher who enjoyed insulting some of the most revered figures of Sunni Islam. The fact that he had converted to Shiism added to his notoriety among Egyptian Sunnis. When we visited the village, the local people didn't want to talk to us about what had happened. This woman, in a black niqab, said that all the TV channels were talking negatively about them and the media was responsible for what was happening there. It's not clear what she meant. The woman also told us she was worried that her son might convert to Shiism or that her daughter might one day marry a Shia. For her, she said, the Shia are disgusting because of the way, she says, they disrespect the Prophet and his wife. Only a short drive away from the village is the headquarters of Nilesat, the Egyptian satellite company that transmits most of the sectarian channels we've researched. We ask their managing director, Salah Hamza, why he allows channels like these to stay on air. He says he is almost powerless to do anything about them. We can't monitor more than 700 channels, but if we have a complaint, then we address it. The terms of our contract state that we can remove a channel if it breaks the rules. But in 15 years, I can't remember a single occasion on which we canceled the channel's contract. I'm now going to meet one man who has remained on air despite being one of Egypt's most controversial television presenters. His name is Muhammad Saber. I meet him at his home. It's a smart, well-furnished apartment. He's getting ready to leave for one of his regular evening broadcasts. He combs his hair carefully, puts on his tie and jacket, and inspects his shoes. He looks like a businessman setting out for the office. And this is what Saber sounds like on air. He grew up in a poor village. He left home and lived alone from the age of 12 and dreamed of one day becoming a TV news presenter. He has since gathered a strong following, and has become the lead presenter on the Sunni sectarian TV channel, Safar. He also has his own show on Egyptian state TV. Saber explains that there is a cancer that has attacked the Muslim faith, and it is called Shiaism. I tell him that he is generalizing, and ask if he really means all Shia. Yes he says. They are all the same. And he rejects the idea that a Shia could convert and become a Sunni. I don't want them with us. If sectarianism is the solution, so be it, he says. Safar TV looks and sounds pretty professional. A large studio filled with lights, an impressive looking set, and a signature tune to introduce Mohammed Faber's show. The channel was banned during the rule of President Mubarak, accused of broadcasting sectarian hatred. But it quickly reopened after he was forced from office in 2011. SOFA claims to have millions of viewers, but running an operation like this isn't cheap. It's said to cost around $450,000 a year to keep a station like this on air.
1: So who pays for this? The views appears Pearson Nation Talk are not necessarily views of Talk Shoe, Generated Productions, and its Sponsors. This is Nation Talk. You're listening to Nation Talk on Talk and Gen Radio.
0: Well, in the case of Safa TV in Egypt, we've discovered a small group of wealthy donors who provide the bulk of the funds to keep the channel running. These donors are based in Kuwait, a tiny country sandwiched between Saudi Arabia and Iraq. One of them is a businessman from a wealthy family with political connections and possible ties to a separatist group in Iran. Madawar Rashid of the London School of Economics says wealthy private individuals are indeed one important source of funding for the sectarian channels. But she says, money also comes from governments and from two in particular
5: if we're talking about the Sunni field, we find that Saudi Arabia takes uh, an active part in uh, sponsoring uh, certain uh, um, media outlets in the Muslim world, from newspapers to television. On the other hand, we find Iran uh, uh, has a lot to say about the Shia media that it sponsors and the other groups that, uh, for example, are political. Um, uh, And this kind of sponsorship leads to a polarization.
0: The other question is, To what extent this polarization in the media actually creates facts on the ground? Can we attribute a car bomb in Baghdad to the purveyors of hatred on satellite television? Was Hassan Shahata beaten to death and dragged through the streets of an Egyptian village because of the anti-Shi'a vitriol beamed out over the airwaves? Not easy questions to answer, says Professor al-Rashid
5: to accurately measure the impact of this media is probably not possible but we can say that they have a negative impact on the ordinary people who may not be well um, versed in the historical facts in the complexity of the past perhaps we cannot link these
0: broadcasters directly to the violence but it seems obvious to me that they are feeding the flames of hatred. Freedom to Broadcast Hate was a BBC Arabic production. It was presented by me, Noura Ddeen and produced by Tim Mansell.
6: There are dozens of different podcasts now available from the BBC, including news, documentaries, science, business, arts and sports. The details of them all, go to bbcworldservice.com slash
0: podcasts. This is a BBC podcast. You can get all our podcasts and our terms of use at bbcworldservice.com slash podcasts.
14: You're listening to Assignment on the BBC World Service with me, Valeria Perazzo, on the U.S.-Mexico border. The door gets opened. It's a rusty panel that is fitted into the border fence and has a metal lock and a metal bar that is pulled across. This is where the bus is carrying the detainees have arrived. They are taken out in pairs. They are handcuffed and they are also tied together with a black cord around the arms and the waist. They look distressed. Some of them look really tired. They're just staring at the fence, and then they go in line when they are called and go through. As part of the World Service Freedom 2014 season, I'm exploring the journey these Mexican deportees are taking from the U.S., where many are detained due to their immigration status and following them as they are brought to the border fence which separates the two countries. They are then led to these lords which are opened several times a day by officials and they walk through, back to Mexico and a freedom they often do not want. My worst
4: fear is to be deported back to Mexico even being detained in the U.S. would be better. That could be punishment for my coming here illegally. But deportation? No. That is by far the worst option.
15: I was really close to my mom when I was over there in the States. I would wake up. I would go to school, but I knew my family was at home. I knew they were waiting for me. There was someone at home waiting for me. Home I was over there with my family. If we moved over there, it was just so we could get a better life. I feel like I'm free but like a hostage because
11: I still seem like I'm still not free because I'm here. I got to survive how to survive here in Mexico.
14: We are in suburban San Diego east of downtown in a residential neighborhood um, full of small cottages and bungalows, many of them painted in terracotta colors with palm trees around. And we've come here to see Manuel Fonseca, a Mexican migrant who has been living in the U.S. for quite a while now, and is waiting to see what happens with his deportation case, which is in its final stages. We are now going to go into his house. Uh,
3: I
13: have been in a long legal battle since 2010. I've had to change lawyers a few times. My case was denied twice, even though I have spent most of my life here in the U.S. So this is the last bit of time I have left with my family. I'm trying to buy more time. I'm scared opening the mailbox every morning and finding that letter with my deportation date on it.
14: And we are now here in your living room uh, with your wife that has poured this really tasty lemonade for us, and your house is full of pictures, your kids are playing around. Um, how would it feel to not be here? I'm, I'm sure that you've, you've thought about this.
13: a It would affect us all dramatically. It's hard to even think about, but my wife would have to work more. I know I would get ill being apart from them. I've been working honestly and paying my taxes here in the U.S. for so long. I never did anything wrong. I don't know why the government doesn't want me
14: here. Manuel illegally entered the United States around 20 years ago, motivated as most immigrants are by the prospect of a better life. The minimum wage in Mexico is 5 to $6 a day. In the U.S., it's $8 an hour. With the cost of living in the two countries similar, it is for many a simple economic decision. He since had two children, aged 6 and 12, and has been working and paying taxes using someone else's social security number, as he didn't have ID documents of his own. U.S. immigration laws as they stand do not differentiate between those who entered illegally 20 years ago or yesterday. They are all subject to be deported. There have been record numbers of deportations under the Obama administration despite his commitment to reform. Last year, America removed nearly 400,000 undocumented immigrants. But it's a drop in the ocean when you consider that there are an estimated 11 million people living illegally in the U.S.
10: Momento, a a la...
14: Manuel was caught in a routine traffic stop by police and he was detained. He was sent to the hotel Detention Center. Uh, yes.
2: This is our central control center, like our CCTV, key tools, all of the basic areas over here. This is the central one that controls all the common areas
0: we use something called unit management to where each of our general housing units is controlled with its internal control center.
14: We've been given special access to the Otay facility in San Diego where about a thousand inmates are held. It's the last stop for many Mexicans before they are deported. We don't
3: want to make a lot of noise. It
14: like it's technically not a prison, but with its high walls, surrounded by fences and barbed wire, it feels a lot like one. Criminals with serious offenses, in addition to immigration crimes, are also held here.
11: We're gonna head this way now. We have 3
2: little housing, and we're gonna head over to B unit. I'll point out a few things along the way.
14: We see lots of inmates around with their uniforms. It's a two-level area. They have their rooms in the upper level, all numbered. And in the lower part, there are tables and benches, and they are all, at the moment, doing their round cleaning after lunch. They are all men, most of them in orange jumpsuits. Some of them also wearing dark blue. On the back of their jumpsuits, you have the word detainee stamped in black. We are not allowed to speak to any of the inmates here, but Manuel explained what
13: it was like for him when he was at OT. It was the worst nightmare. It makes me want to cry when I think about it. It was very stressful. They treated me well enough, but I was behind bars.
14: Manuel was held with violent offenders. Inmates are categorized and differentiated at Otay by the color of their uniforms.
13: me color I was in the lower risk category, so life was a bit easier than for the others, but I had to share the cells with about 60 others in the block, and there were people there who belonged to gangs, so there were violent incidents. I tried not to make any trouble and keep my head down, basically. In 2010,
14: John Morton, the then director of the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency, led a change in policy. He directed his staff to focus on deporting the most dangerous and violent undocumented immigrants. He created a priority one category for them, but this didn't affect Manuel's case, which continued towards deportation.
10: I
13: was so glad to be able to live in the end. I had a clean record all my life, never any past criminal convictions, so I did get bail. I right, we'll
2: make our way, all me, please. We'll notice each year's recreation yard, also in the unit, all nice and separate.
14: Behind the housing unit is the recreational area with a basketball court with a a very high wall with barbed wire on the top. Even though it's in the open air, you have a feeling that you are enclosed. You are outside, but you are still in an area where you are not free. Well, when I first came in the Border Patrol,
11: there wasn't really any fencing. Most of it was just a barbed wire fence along the border, and you would have basically people to just unobstructed come across the border either by foot or in vehicle, uh, just by any means that they wanted.
14: We are here with Assistant Chief Vasquez, just by the fence on the U.S. side. This here, this is the metal fence, what they call the secondary fence, what, seven meters tall? Approximately, yes. And after that, there's a smaller fence made of corrugated iron, and that's the Mexican side of the fence. From there on, you have Tijuana and the whole of Mexico. When was this built? This section of the fence back here, the original one, was built back in the late
11: 80s, early 90s.
14: Much has changed in border security since then. As Assistant Chief Rosario Vasquez shows me their strong second fence, he points out other high-tech measures they now have in place
11: remote surveillance cameras. We also have sensors that we have placed throughout, and we do also have uh, aerial uh, aircraft, part of our air and marine operations that will patrol the border.
14: And now we've driven up the hill, and from here you can tell how difficult it is to patrol this area. It's a very vast area, very complex to have under surveillance, isn't it?
11: Yes, it is. I mean, the terrain really differs. Now we also have the double fencing here that helps buy our agents time when they need to get eyes on subjects that are coming in illegally and gives them time to respond.
14: And we've just seen an officer in a motorbike. You also have trucks?
11: Well, we have agents on all-terrain vehicles, ATVs, bicycle patrols, and then we also have agents on horseback.
14: What's the daily routine of a Border Patrol agent?
11: Their duties can vary. They go to their briefing in the morning. Normal. patrol duties along the border, or even doing uh, intel analysis to better utilize our resources. We do work on a risk-based strategy, so we're going to analyze basically everything that's going on on the border and determine where where the greatest risk is, and that's where we're going to deploy our resources.
14: America now spends more money on immigration enforcement than on all the other main federal law enforcement agencies combined. Budgets increased significantly after the 9-11 attacks as the perceived terror threat prioritized spending on securing the country's borders. This has created an efficient machine which can track and catch immigrants from all over the U.S. and helps explain the record levels of deportations in the last five years.
11: Illegal immigration is is a threat because you don't know who that person is until you actually apprehend them and you're able to put their fingerprints or whatever biometrics that you can get into a system to determine who they really are and what threat they pose. Hello, I don't know if you guys
14: want you tell them or not. <laughs> and when we were walking with the border patrol next to the border, a truck stopped bringing some of the deportees of today, about eight people who are being taken by a secure truck, the same type that you would find take prisoners out of jail, um, being taken all the way up to the border and stopping here. They're just staring at the fence and then they go in line when they are called. It's a very well-oiled, speedy process that they go through and everything happens pretty much in silence. One of the women we see being deported through the fence today is in her 20s, and although she has perfect
15: English, she prefers to speak to us in Spanish. I'm Isabel Dávalos. No, estoy Am Isabel Dávalos, single, no kids. No, pues como todo, no llegas, quieres cruzar, no puedes. This is what always happens. You get to the border, try to cross. The immigration authorities catch you and arrest you, and three or four days later, they send you back. She's a repeat deportee, her fourth deportation in as many years.
14: Figures suggest that around half of the Mexicans caught at the border have been apprehended before. Although illegal reentry is a felony offense with jail time attached, sometimes the authorities deport straight away instead. Isabel explains why she keeps on trying, despite the fact that it's now much harder to cross.
15: I crossed the border as a kid with my brothers in a car. It wasn't so difficult back then. That was 12 years ago. I was studying law over there. I went to primary school, high school, and was in college in the States when it all started. I never had any immigration problems, until I reached the age of 21. I was driving without a license. That's how they caught me and took me to the detention center. I think this time I don't want to try again. I'm so tired. I feel defeated. The U.S. is the land of opportunity just there on the other side of the fence and I cannot seem to make it over there I just keep asking myself now what I have to start all over again but I can't just give up Tijuana doesn't have anything for me all my family is over there mother father brothers nephews everyone I will try again but if it doesn't work out It'll just be yet another welcome back to Mexico for me.
14: You are listening to The Door Back to Mexico on assignment as part of the BBC World Service Freedom 2014 season. Evening time. It's already dark outside, and we are crossing the border through El Chaparral gates from the U.S. into Mexico. We are driving through barriers, and there are docks on the side where some of the cars get stopped and searched. It's quite busy with vehicles driving slowly through the lanes. On both sides of the road, we can see the fences, and we were not stopped. We are now already going into Mexico. A very short drive from the border, you go up the hill and you have Tijuana with all its lights lying to the right. A very densely populated area, lots of buildings, lots of lights, some antennas flashing in the distance. We are getting a warm greeting on the Mexican side of the border by immigration officials who are here when deportees pass through the fence door from the U.S. They are going to take us to their side of the same door that Isabel just walked through so that we can find out what happens from their point of view. Rudolfo Figueroa Pacheco is the suited director showing us around. We're going to the repatriation bay. That is the first point of contact between
4: the Mexican authorities and those who are being deported.
14: We're crossing over a bridge that takes from Mexico to that very door. This whole installation is
4: inside Mexico. Only the door is next to the United States. So, how many
14: deportees a year cross? There are about
4: 46,000 deportees every year in Tijuana about 95,000 deportees throughout the state of Baja California.
14: And how have you seen that number
4: changing in the past few years? Well, the number's been going down, but it's also true that the type of deportees that we're receiving uh, is a little different. Those who are being deported are people who have spent more time in the United States.
14: We are coming down a ramp towards the end of this bridge, and ahead of us there's a door. Um, that leads to to the office right on the border. Yes, this
4: is the deportation point. I understand uh, you visited this point. This is called Whiskey 3. Uh, People are deported through this door and uh, they are received
14: by one of the repatriation officers. The door, the repatriation gate is being unlocked at the moment. We are now seeing it from the Mexican side, whereas on the other side is just an open road in the restricted area in the open air. Here, there's an office.
4: The door may be open for one deportee or for 50. It really, there is really no pattern.
3: door
14: gets closed one last person, a man who has just came back with a plastic bag in his hands, uh, holding a few envelopes inside, uh, who is now talking to the officer here and getting registered before coming in. We will go and see if he wants to talk to us. He's a man in his 30s with light brown hair and wearing a crumpled brown shirt and trousers. The laces on his shoes have been removed. This is done to inmates in detention, and he agrees to talk. We find out his name is Daniel and that he's been living in the U.S. for most of his life.
16: I lived in the U.S. since I was two years old. I graduated high school there. It's difficult because, see, I, I, got, I got family in the you know, United States. I got a daughter and two boys. and uh, it's difficult because...
14: Uh, Are you hoping to get reunited at some point?
16: Reuniting with them is going to be a difficult thing to reunite with them. They're United States citizens, and all Mexican citizens, so...
5: Is this your first time?
16: No, it's about my fourth time. I got deported in 2003 for a crime.
14: Daniel reveals he's a criminal deportee, spending nine years in a U.S. prison. His release and arrival into Mexico involves conflicting emotions. He's glad to be free, he says, but yearns to be back again with his family in the States. You are detained, right, in the U.S. for quite a long time, so does that mean that now you value your freedom more now that you have it back?
16: Oh, well, yes, I value it much more.
14: Well, what's freedom to you at this moment?
16: Freedom is being able to go to the park or take care of your family, just being free from the bars, from telling people to tell you what to do every day. You want to live outside the rules and just be free.
14: What do you think about the U.S. now that you are here? It's
16: It's bad that they break up families. You know, if you have kids, like I have two children over there, I just ask for no, for more mercy from them. But their laws are just. You know, they're they're just laws over there. I'm not gonna downgrade them or put them down. It's not good to talk about bad about the country you came from.
14: Um, What would you like for your life?
16: I'd like for my sons to grow up with their father, my daughter with their father.
14: Do you feel that uh, by being here you are free from all you went through um, in the U.S., but at the same time it's not necessarily a freedom that you want and a place where you want to be?
8: Given
16: the choice, I'd rather be in the U.S.
14: Daniel says he plans to stay in Tijuana for a while. There's a church-run shelter in town where he can stay for a week or so, but if he can't find a job or money after that, he could end up in a place of extreme poverty. Some of them stay here for a few days, sometimes weeks, sometimes it becomes a longer stay. What problems are associated to that?
4: The regular problems that anybody without a job has is people who don't have a place to live, it's people who don't have a place to uh, work, and uh, they can quickly become either involved in petty crime or be victims of crime or they can attempt to cross the border again and fall victim to whatever it is that happens when you're trying to cross the border, which is, many. I mean, there can be many, many dangers in crossing the border. You can die of exposure in the desert. Again, the longer you linger in limbo in the city, the higher your likelihood to fall into distress.
14: Some deportees live inside of the fence on a concrete wasteland, a place called the Tijuana Riverbed. Where drug addiction and desperation permeate the air. We are now on the riverbed, and the stench is almost unbearable. We have piles of rubbish all over. There's rotting meat, there's feces, syringes, and there's just next to us a pile of clothing—all clothing from some of the people that live here. It's just hard to, to imagine that this is where people actually live. It's a uh, an area of concrete with two ramps on the side full of graffiti, very desolate with stagnant patches of dirty water and a very strong smell. It's very shocking and I'm, I'm finding it hard to be right here right now. It
13: can take just ten days for a deportee to end up in these impoverished conditions.
14: Local priest Father Ernesto Hernandez is with us because it's not safe for us alone. He's well respected for his work helping those who live here. Among them some deportees who in their depression and longing to see their families in the U.S. again find themselves here. Look over there,
4: it's the border. You can see the fence from here. Staying here
9: for the deportees is an emotional decision. They've left their families in the U.S. and being here is a way to remain close to them. This is, of course, irrational, but it just helps them psychologically. Also, it helps to be close if your intention is to try and sneak back in. Often, when you walk around, you see a lot of them just sitting on the southern bank facing north, just staring over there towards the U.S.
14: Back in the U.S., Manuel Fonseca is facing the fear of
13: deportation. I have a great family here. There are so many opportunities. I'm undocumented, yes, but I am a good person. I've been doing everything a citizen is supposed to do.
14: He's hoping that immigration reform will help him. President Obama has prioritized changes to legislation this year, but has been unsuccessful to date due to the strength of opposition to his plans. He says he wants to create a path towards earned citizenship with penalties attached. But many Americans believe illegal immigrants should be subject to harsh punishment for not playing by the rules. Manuel says he wants a little more
13: time with his family.
10: Me gusta escuchar cuando hablan de alguna reforma.
13: I always feel hopeful when I hear about possible reform, but maybe our Latino leaders are asking for too much. I just want a permit for a year or two rather than the full citizenship. Even a few months would do.
14: The border doors to Mexico could be a short way off for Manuel. It may initially bring a sense of freedom, relief even, but the reality of his new life, closing off economic opportunity, and leaving his family behind, will shut with the doors behind him, and there will be little hope of return. That was The Door Back to Mexico, presented by me, Valeria Perazzo, produced by Nina Robinson as part of the BBC's Freedom 2014 season.
4: That's the sound of your classmate forwarding a picture from your profile to everyone he knows. Some guys posting graphic comments about your body. And worst of all, your dad seeing a photo of you topless. All because of the time you posted those pictures on your profile. Anything you post online, anyone can see. Family, friends, and even not-so-friendly people. Visit Cybertipline.com. Brought to
5: you by the U.S. Department of Justice, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, and the Ad Council.
10: From the vantage point, Mafatu saw six war canoes drawn upon the beach, but what held the boy's eyes in awful trance were the figures springing and leaping about the flames, darting, shifting, bounding toward the sky, the eaters of men, cannibals. Firelight glistened on their royal bodies, on flashing spears and bristling decorations. Fatu watched the strange scene, powerless to move, and he felt Doom itself breathing chill upon his neck. In that very instant he heard a crashing in the undergrowth. Four figures were tearing toward him through the jungle. He could see them now. He turned and ran blindly down the trail, slipping, sliding, stumbling, his breath all but choking in his throat. Only one thought gave him courage as he ran, his canoe ready and waiting. If only he could reach it. Find out what happens next by reading the book Call It Courage by Armstrong Sperry. For other great book ideas, visit literacy.gov. A message from the Library of Congress and the Yard Council.
5: I shoved the envelope under my sweater and sneaked through the kitchen. Mom was on the phone in the front room. I didn't want to have to explain anything. I just wanted to be by myself. Clutching the envelope tightly, I stepped onto the ladder at the bottom of the treehouse. Something caught my eye above me, and I looked up. <gasps> light. It looked as if there were a firework display going on inside the treehouse. Crackling and snapping and whizzing sounds spun around above my head, like shot out and sparks dancing to the popping of noise. My first thought was to scream fire and run to the house to get mom. My legs trembled as
10: I inched upward, creeping
5: up the rungs as quietly as I could. My heart banged so hard that it felt as if someone were hitting my chest. A couple more steps, and then I leaned forward, craning my neck to look inside. And then I looked up and saw. Find out what happens next, read Philippa Fisher's Fairy God Sister by Liz Kessler. Explore new worlds and check out more cool books at your local library. And visit read.gov, brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad
7: Council. You're listening to the Jam Radio Network with Minister Kenneth Jenkins.
9: As we celebrate easter and the victorious resurrection of our lord jesus christ we need to realize that the cross was not the only way he suffered so how high a price did christ pay for our sins stay tuned
2: there was one who was born in order to die not that he had sinned to pay for of his own because he was sinless
9: this is science scripture and salvation a creation radio journal i'm chris o'brien with the institute for creation research In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, we find John the Baptist baptizing people in the wilderness.
7: In verse 29, he sees Jesus. You're listening to Quiet Storm... I'm sorry,
1: Nation Talk here on Talk Show and Jam Radio. And let's see. Let's get into
7: some... Let's get into some, uh... Into into
1: some news. Well, of of course, you know, you heard about the, uh... I just heard a discussion about
7: um, <laughs> Roseanne and Samantha B. That is a mess.
1: That is certainly a mess.
7: Well, anyway, Bill Clinton. Media was friendlier to Clinton because they like having
1: African-American. And also, Bill Clinton and James Patterson wrote a book, wrote a novel, a new novel entitled The President is Missing. I haven't seen, I have not read it. I don't know it's supposed to be coming out this summer. Now, when is this I don't know if it's out already or it's coming out this summer? Um but it ought to be some interesting reading on that part.
7: Um it, President Clinton uh did an interview. and yeah, I'm I'm waiting for it to come up here. Recently
1: did an interview and talked about uh I guess various subjects. Various subjects of interest that interest that they, that whoever interviewed them wanted to know about and, um his thoughts on this current administration, which I know he had a lot of thoughts on it. I know he had a lot to say about it.
7: Uh, there has been a lot of... Uh, a <laughs> lot to be said.
1: Bill Clinton media, Bill Clinton, media was familiar to Obama because they like having African-American president
7: from Yahoo! Entertainment News. This is... And of course I mentioned Bill Clinton along with
1: the... former president... turned author. Bill Clinton said Sunday that former President Barack Obama received friendlier treatment in the press than other Democrats and Republicans, in part because the media like having an African American in office. Clinton out promoting his new book, The President the The President is missing, a pot boiler after a chief executive who goes rogue to fight terrorists. It was co written Best-selling author James Patterson speaking on CBS this morning. Clinton talked about why the political press gave friendly coverage to Obama. At first said, why? I don't know. Then added, they like him, and they like like having the first African-American president, and he was a good president. I think. Clinton said, I don't agree with President Truman's assessment of his I mean President Trump's assessment I'm sorry, President Trump's assessment on I me mean, of of his service. Clinton addressed several topics including that he knew the attempt to impeach him would not succeed. A majority of House Representative members must vote for changes in order to impeach the president after the charges of misconduct are filed. The Senate has the power to try impeachment cases like a court. Two-thirds of the Senate must vote for conviction. Uh, Clinton was charged with perjury and our strut General Justice for lying about his relationship with then-White House intern Monica Lewinsky. Lewinsky. He, he was acquitted by the Senate. Well, well, I knew I, I, I wouldn't succeed, Clinton said. It wasn't a, a pleasant experience, but it was a fight that I was glad to undertake after the elections. When the people had silently told excuse me by two-thirds or more the Republicans to stop it. They knew there was nothing impeachable and we fought to the end and I am glad. After his literary skills, Clinton claimed they stemmed for being an avid reader I consume literally thousands and thousands of thrillers, political novels and this kind of stuff as for Patterson he's just good at it but I want to be real couldn't say I didn't want anybody to be able to say oh this is just this is made up bull you know The worst possible attack on the United States happens in the book. And if it happened this, the way it would happen, Patterson said, this is a traitor, there's a traitor in the White House, if it happened, that is authentic how it would happen. Hmm. Sounds interesting already. Uh... I'm trying to see if uh if it's a is available yet.
7: But uh, come on, come on.
1: Uh, the worst possible attack in the United States is it happened. Okay. So the President Clinton and Patterson James Patterson Talking about the subjects and the new book, President is Missing. That's one of the things that's been, that's one of the news items that is being, that's one of the news items. Uh, Let's check out some more news stuff. We got like 20 more minutes. We got like about 20 more minutes or so, we can check out some more stuff as we go along. And I want to want to want, while I'm waiting, I want to thank everyone from the Facebook page for wishing me a happy birthday on Friday. Yes, Friday was my was my birthday. I'm now 57 as we speak, 57 years old. Pushing sixty hard. <laughs> uh, hundreds of shoes form memorial in Puerto Rico
7: after Maria death toll strikes spikes. Uh, Trump says June 12th summit
1: with Korea is is start to process. Process that remains to be seen. You know, a few weeks about a couple of weeks ago, I did the story about I did the story about um, about North Korea, and I said, to "My, I said, I really don't trust them. Really, really, honestly, I really don't trust North Korea." I really don't. Here's another story. Straight from the headlines: Four dollar verdict shocks family of a man fatally failed, shot by police. Hmm. The final that the family of Gregory Hill, who was killed in 2014, after two Florida sheriff's, the sheriff's department the sheriff's deputy responded to a noise complaint at his house for a wrongfully deaf lawsuit against the sheriff's office. The jury awarded
7: his family $1. Ain't that something? $4? Four dollars? Four dollars? Now that's not even enough to
1: buy a hamburger, belly. Four dollars?
7: You gotta be kidding me. I ain't crazy? And it was a wrong for death
1: and and it was a wrong for death. how dare them four dollars you kidding me right You are kidding right this report is not this is this is not is this for real.
7: Police said Hill pointed a gun at the deputy and no command to drop it,
1: forcing one of them to open fire. The the gun would would have fallen out of Hill's hand, his family attorney said, but the unloaded weapon was found in the park, in the found in the back pocket of the jeans shorts. Hill was wearing. Hill's mother sued St. Lucie County Sheriff Ken Mascara and Christopher Newman, the deputy who killed her son for wrongful death after nearly two weeks of trial and 10 hours of del- 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 deliberation last month. A jury sided with police and found that Newman did nothing wrong. The eight juries d- decided that mas- Mascara was one percent at fault, while Hill was largely to blame for his death at 99 percent because he was drunk doing the competition. In a move that the family's attorney said was doubtfully surprised the jury gave money to the, lo- to the losing party, for $4, a dollar for funeral costs, which was about $11,000 and another for each of Hill's three young children, ages 3, 10,
7: and 7. Adjusting for the blame the jury placed
1: on mask mascara, the family would receive only one percent of the four dollars or four cents, said John Phillips, who represents Hill's mother Viola Bryant. Quote I've never seen anything like it. If you lose a case, give Zero dollars. If you win a case, give fair value," Philip said. That's where you've just kind of confused. Were they trying to say that we would be punished for basically bringing the suit, and thus the dollar, or were they saying that that the true value of the child's pain was? a dollar. likened the scenario to giving tips to restaurant service for terrible terrible service. Without a tip, they may wonder if I forgot to tip or if I was just cheap. If I had a dollar, you're going to know I intended to tip and this is an insult. It was
7: an insult. That is an insult. Well, and and
1: by the way, another part of this story comes from
7: the Washington Post. Washington Post. That's just as bad as the, um, that's just as bad
1: as the, or worse, or it's not as bad, but it, it seems like, I don't know where it is. If you get, if you get arrested, and the police give you commands to tell you to drop it or put your hands on your head, or, or go to the ground, why don't they go why they don't why don't they obey them and stop being so difficult with the police? That part I don't understand. That part I don't understand. And this is why a lot of our
7: African-American men, and and some other women, either shot, wounded, or killed. So, what can we do? What can you do? I don't know. But my suggestion to if you if
1: the police stop you just obey the commands. Obey the commands. It's very simple. When they say drop it, drop it. If they say get on the ground or whatever commands they, they give you, get on the freaking ground. Don't ask questions, just do as they say. Plain simple as that. But and sometimes and, and, and sometimes they wanna break away. They wanna <laughs> and they wanna break away. Try to try to run from the police.
2: When they come for you, bad boys, bad boys.
12: What you gonna do? What you gonna do when they come for you? Nobody, not getting no brave. Police now, no brave. Not the old soldier, man, I give you no brave. Not even your eyes, bad boys, bad
2: boys. What you gonna do? What you gonna do when they come for you? Bad boys, bad boys.
6: Caregiver, drive them physical therapy, doctor's appointments, be there emotionally and physically. Don't give up. Don't ever give up. Caregiving is tougher than tough. Find care guides at aarp.org caregiving. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council.
15: To buy your home, you became a house-hunting ace. Learned about loans, scoured neighborhoods, and asked the right questions. If you manage that, you can get your retirement plan on track. Visiting aceyourretirement.org can help. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council.
2: Maybe you can drive my car. Hi, I'm Edward James Olmos. I'm here to talk to you about RAD, recording artists, actors, and athletes against drunk driving. Think about it. You have choices that you can make in your life good choices and bad ones. Drinking and driving, bad choice. Why? The life you may take may even be your own. Think about it. Drinking and driving doesn't mix. Get a designated driver. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, RAD, the National Association of Broadcasters, and the Ad Council. Yeah!
1: The views of fears of Nation Talk are not necessarily views of talks you, generated protections and its sponsors. This is Nation
3: talk.
1: Well, we got a few minutes left. On program, I want to thank all of you for tuning in and uh, being part of this program. You can go back and re-listen to this program. Uh, right about give it about uh, about an hour, thirty minutes to an hour, I guess. Give it about that time to to, to um to to load up, and you can go back to talk show. Uh, to Nation Talk's uh, program and uh, you can you can be listened to his broadcast and if you know somebody who listens regularly uh, you can tell them that you can also remind them they can go there too also I read this last week and I'm going to read this again this is from last month from uh, the Talk you support, uh, the cost series announcements. Um, that it's an important update, historic, historical content on talk you series. We have now reinstalled all content in almost all cases back to the beginning of January 2015. All right. Recordings and uploaded audio are now stored on cloud services, along with previously recorded content dating back to the beginning of January 2015. Unfortunately, we have now concluded that older recorded content prior to January 15 must not must now be considered unrecoverable. We apologize for this outcome as the idiom staff and especially the technical staff have worked tirelessly on saving as much of as use' older content as much as they possibly could. Uh, the uploading pre recorded contact guidelines, good practice as described in our host training classes on our live talkshoot support call. Advice is host to replace an existing recording by updating an edited version. Instructions on how to get how to do this go to our support center on talkshoot. If you, if you can be reached, it, it can be reached by the help button at the top right, top right of most pages, or direct link uh, support. Also, we would like to bring to your attention that Idiom is currently working on the development and relaunch of Talkshu which will add more functionally of improved reliability, great flexibility and use and better support for hosts. Again we do apologize for great for the great inconvenience this issue causes our hosts and users. Talkshoe team so just, just just a heads up on if you try to find some of the old stuff, not i tried it already, try to find some of the old stuff, and uh, it's not there. So, if you find, you can only find right now the programs from starting at January 2015 now. Uh, sorry about that, folks. It's, that's out of that's out of my control. There's nothing. That's nothing I can do about that. There's nothing I can do about that. Uh, be sure to join us every weekend for Quiet Star Inspirations, Saturday nights at 10 p.m. and uh, Morning Inspirations at 6 a.m. 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and 5th Sundays, and you can catch this program, Nation Talk, Sunday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. This, I I want to thank you all for listening and tuning in, and remind you that the views and opinions of Nation Talk are not necessarily the views of talk Shoot generating production, and its sponsors. This is your Sunday evening forum, Nation Talk. Nation Talk is a live public affairs and news program that deals with issues concerning you from the studios in Savannah, Georgia. This uh, program, Nation Talk, is a public affairs and news program that airs Sunday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time sure to, to to join us next Sunday for another Nation Talk. Nation Talk right here on Talk to you with Jam Radio. Nation Talk is produced by Jam Radio Productions. It's a it's a such is a presentation is a is produced by Jam Radio Productions presentations. Well. Thanks for listening, and uh, be safe. Be safe out there, especially during when during these summer months as as it gets hot. Good night. Thanks for listening. God bless
12: you. I was born. In <laughs>
8: Then I...